Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Wow, you wow, hello. You're pumped for a Monday. There's three uh, hellos. I am the pumpest of pumps. Have you checked the rundown? We are interviewing mm-hmm. the climate change minister from Dubai today. Yeah, I know, but we could still have time for pleasantries. There is no time for pleasantries. There is no time at all. You're not even going to ask me about my weekend? I'm not going to ask you about your weekend, no. So I've got no time for me to, to tell you all about the delightful pre-Christy lunch I attended? No, no, no Christy lunch talk. It was delicious. It was a wild game lunch. It was venison power. My friend either caught or shot that. I made crackers from scratch I'm, like I'm, there were seeds I'm, in a I'm bowl. I'm just going to cut and her off, 20 minutes, everybody. Lady. Let's fade her down. We have a minister waiting to speak to us. Kia This is Newsable. I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen, and my crackers are worth talking about. No, this is what's worth talking about. New Zealand was given fossil of the day at COP28 and signed on late to win a renewable energy pledge. So how has the reception been for our freshly minted climate change minister, Simon Watts? The great renaming has begun. Waka Kutahi now comes behind NZTA. But just how much is this rebranding exercise costing? Shrinkflation is not a trend. It's a permanent hit to your wallet and your pantry. And Whamageddon, the global Christmas game you might be playing without even realising it. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. New Zealand received this heinous award because they've taken a U-turn on climate policy. COP28, the United Nations 28th Global Climate Change Conference, is entering its final days in Dubai. Negotiations are underway on deals which could cut emissions and keep alive the goal to keep climate change to 1.5 degrees within this century rather than the three degrees we're headed for at the moment. New Zealand climate change ministers, new and old, are both at the end of the summit. James Shaw, who of course had the role under the previous government, and his successor, Simon Watts, who I'm very pleased to say joins us now from Dubai. Minister, there is getting dropped in the deep end, and then there is what's happened to you, which has been sent to a global climate summit within essentially your first week on the job. How are you coping, and what is COP like? Yeah, well, it's been a, a really action-packed start, uh, pretty much just over 72 hours after being sworn in in Parliament, <laughs> uh, we're here on the ground. And look, it was really important for me as Climate Change Minister uh, to be here on the ground to represent New Zealand uh, and to listen uh, to what is uh, happening at a global level, and in particular with our Pacific neighbours. I've had an action-packed schedule, uh, met with a number of uh, countries uh, across the world uh, already, and uh, today uh, we're meeting with uh, Brazil, India, uh, and uh, Colombia uh, out of uh, a selection. Yesterday I did a national address to the entire um, uh, collective of, of all countries here on behalf of where New Zealand is at on the, our journey uh, and have also last night uh, participated and caught up with the nearly over 100 uh, Kiwi businesses, uh, NGOs, Iwi Māori uh, that are here at COP, the largest ever contingent of Kiwis uh, at uh, COP. And it was a really, really positive conversation in terms of the opportunities, I think, that are ahead of New Zealand uh, and the role in which New Zealand's playing on the global stage. Goodness me, you said pack schedule and you weren't lying. Uh, <laughs> Minister, activists at COP uh, gave New Zealand the Fossil of the Day Award for the government's proposal to reopen oil and gas exploration. You've described this award as a distraction. It's not the greatest look for the country, though, is it? It's not the one we're hoping to win every year. Look, the reality is uh, I haven't seen uh, that Fossil of the Day award and uh, it is a distraction. You know, the reality is, and we all know that 
that uh, the last government got it the year before uh, a couple of times, and so it's not anything new. The conversations that we're having here on the ground are very much around getting global consensus around doubling or tripling uh, renewable energy energy efficiency and the phase out of fossil fuels. And those are really difficult conversations for some countries around the world, but New Zealand is very ambitious in terms of achieving those outcomes, uh, and we've been participating uh, actively on that. This is about making sure that we get action uh, not words, and that's the role that we're playing here. What's your dream scenario to come away from COP with, Minister? Look, the dream scenario is for us to get global consensus around a pathway to be phasing out of fossil fuel use. And I think that is uh, what is the real sticking point here at the moment. Uh, and that is the aspect that we and the team on the ground are working very closely with other like-minded uh, countries, uh, including Australia, US, uh, and uh, the UK uh, in order to try and facilitate uh, that position because that is what is required in order for us to uh, transition and to reduce emissions and uh, you know I, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic uh, that we're going to be able to get to a position where we can get some global consensus because it's important that we move forward uh, from the prior COPs, particularly in Paris. Uh, we need to also move from words to action and that's been coming up a lot in the dialogue across uh, multiple countries. Speaking of action, Climate Analytics, which produces a climate action tracker sort of globally, has concluded New Zealand's goals and delivery are highly insufficient. What then is in the government's 100-day plan about climate change? Look, the key uh, point of difference as we transition governments is, is that our government is going to be focused on the how we actually achieve the goal. We know the destination, we know where we need to get to, uh, but we need the clear plan and the actions in terms of the how. One of the most fundamental aspects that will enable us to get to net zero by 2050 is around doubling renewables uh, by 2050. And those actions need to be started to be made in the next eight to 12 quarters. And that's what but we're in the hundred day in the first hundred days, is there anything? So the doubling of renewables is within the first hundred days in terms of putting in place some of the key actions and the program and the steps to do that. So yes, it is uh, the the uh, planning of that is very much uh, part of the hundred day plan. Uh, and Energy Minister uh, uh, Brown, uh, myself, uh, and a number of other ministers are working on uh, making sure we've got a good, clear pathway and plan in order to set ourselves up for success. On the campaign trail, the Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, he said that the climate change minister would sit inside of Cabinet, unlike what happened with James Shaw, he was outside of Cabinet. But in fact, you, you and the Environment Minister are both outside of Cabinet. Is it going to be hard to kind of push for the things that you need to push for when you're not in the room where it happens? No, absolutely not. And you know, the reality of the composition of, of Cabinet is uh, a composition and uh, you're relevant in terms of the the outcome at the election, but uh, having uh, Minister Willis, our Minister of Finance, uh, also being the Associate Climate uh, Minister uh, is very much means that climate is uh, sitting around uh, that cabinet table. And the interactions that I'm having with all of my relevant ministers is hugely productive uh, and positive, and we dialogue continuously. Uh, And the reality is, is we have to work together and we are working together to achieve uh, our joint uh, outcomes and uh, you know that's uh, why I'm on the ground here uh, a lot of the conversation is not just about climate it's also about trade uh, and at the end of the day uh, a lot of the uh, conversations that we're having links back to our economy as well and that's why it's critically important that we continue those dialogues.
Climate change, of course, transcends party politics, doesn't it? It's just the little old thing called the fate of the planet. Will you be advocating and aiming to get cross-party support for all of your policies? Look, we've been consistent you know, right from the start. And, th- and this is a constitutional convention that actually started you know, uh, a, a while ago in terms of the fact that we work uh, in a bipartisan manner across parties. Uh, the last government uh, with uh, James Shaw continued on that, and I've continued on uh, that as well here. So James is on the ground, uh, and uh, where appropriate, he's uh, joining uh, me in some of those conversations. And that is a unique aspect of New Zealand. It has been raised by a number of our international partners of the fact that New Zealand has an ability to uh, take the politics out of where we are heading in terms of we agree on the destination. We might disagree on on how we get there, uh, but uh, politics, uh, you know, the outcome and getting to the destination trumps uh, the politics. And that maturity is seen as a very positive aspect uh, from New Zealand, particularly from some of our key trading partners. Given... The first few things that we've actually heard from the government, I, I hear you about your goals on renewables in the 100-day plan, but we've also got the scrapping of the clean car rebate. We've got the opening of oil and gas exploration. How are you going to convince Kiwis right now that the coalition government really cares about playing a meaningful role in tackling climate change? Well, it's it's really important, and we're hearing this, and I heard this on the ground uh, coming into the election, is that Kiwis are wanting to see action in regards to emission reduction, and they're wanting to see a clear plan that's actually going to get us to that destination. And we know that the renewable aspect is the key mechanism in which will help us to achieve that. But in addition to that, yeah, we've got our program around rolling out uh, EV charging infrastructure, which will facilitate a greater uptake uh, of EV vehicles. Uh, and there's a number of other initiatives that we're going to be working uh, with our coalition partners in order to get in play. But we need a clear plan to get to our destination and we need to get action. The ACT Party, I believe, though, wants quite a clear costing of that EV station rollout. Are you confident you're going to get that across the line? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, appropriate to undertake that type of analysis. uh, And we'll be working through that with our coalition partners as fast as practical because we need to start getting on and and putting those charges in place so the Kiwis can enjoy the benefit. Hopefully, indeed, that is uh, Climate Change Minister Simon Watts from Dubai. Thank you so much for joining us. Much obliged. Thank you. We love, love, love your feedback here on Newsable, especially on our interviews. So if you've got some reckons and hot takes on that interview with the Climate Change Minister, do send them to our email, newsable at stuff.co.nz. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course.
But what's important is that actually we have New Zealanders to be able to navigate their government. When we have New Zealanders that don't understand the difference between the polytechnic system, the health system and the, and the transport system, uh, that's, that's a challenge. New government, new look, or maybe is it new government old look with Prime Minister Christopher Luxon and co sending an official order to ministries and agencies that their names must once again be English first. That means Waka Kotahi, New Zealand Transport Agency, is now, you guessed it, NZTA, Waka Kotahi, and others are set to follow suit, like Te Whatu Order, Health NZ, or Oranga Tamariki. To give us the lowdown on this major rebranding exercise, what it means and what it might cost, is Professor of Marketing at Massey University, Bodo Lang. Bodo, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Can you give us a sort of a bit of a scale of how big this rebrand is going to be? How What sort of things is it going to involve? Because it's not simply us changing the way we say the, the, the title of it, is it? No, absolutely not. There's, there's a lot more to it. So it's basically changing all of the occurrences where the logo appears into the new form. And so that means changing all the digital assets. So that's relatively easily done. But then what's much, much more difficult is actually changing all the hardware assets. So, you know, whenever there's a logo printed on a sign or on a van or on a billboard or whatever it is. So those will, will probably take a longer time, I'm guessing. When we're talking the hardware, the big signs, how much is that likely to cost in total, do you think? Definitely tens of thousands of dollars, I would say, you know, for each of the agencies. So there's definitely a cost involved in this whole exercise, absolutely. Um, if it's an agency that has a lot of assets, I think what they would do is they would roll it out over a long period of time to make sure that, you know, they don't just replace a sign that's just been replaced by the newer version. You know, that would just be a real waste of taxpayers' money, and I don't think that's in anybody's interest, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. What are some common mistakes when companies, organisations, businesses, governments uh, make major rebrandings? I think the single biggest mistake is that companies have a very clever plan developed in the headquarter with a lot of spreadsheets. Everybody's been thinking about it, high-fiving each other, but they just haven't really tapped into what consumers and particularly customers are interested in. And there's some great examples of complete rebranding disasters from around the world. And so I think the the it's really important to do research on this to be customer oriented and you know in this case obviously we want to be citizen oriented I guess is the is the way to put it. Given many Kiwis might have been getting used to these new names or at least having the Maori name first, would this classify as a marketing mistake? I think it's a great question. I think people are definitely getting more used to these names. There's no toys about it. You know, if you would have asked two years ago what is Wakat Kutai or Kayangora or, you know, any other uh, name of a government agency, I think a much, much smaller proportion of New Zealanders would have been able to correctly identify what that is. Roll forward to December 2023, I think, you know, there's a, a much better understanding as to what these different government agencies are standing for, you know, what what is it that they actually do. Do you reckon, Bodo, there was an alternative here to this potentially very expensive, I think you said tens of thousands per government agency, was there an alternative here to this whole rebranding exercise? I think it's a really, really tricky one and I think I'd be really surprised if the government hadn't done pretty good research on this, you know, because it's just, I mean, if you're uninitiated, you might say, look, this is just cosmetics, really does it matter? But I do think it does matter because I think it's one of those signposts that shows us where we're going as a society. And I certainly, in my mind, I think it's undeniably clear that we want to have both versions and any logo of of a government agency. The question is, which one should come first? 
you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think that just depends on how narrow you want to frame the argument or how wide you want to frame it. You know, do we want to be supportive to Te Reo Māori? Um, do we want to show that it's part of our identity? Then maybe Te Reo Māori becomes the first one. If you want it, you know, for to keep the argument narrow and just hone in on, let's make it understood by the greatest number of people in New Zealand and tourists and whatever, that is clearly English because, you know, that's just the language that's most widely spoken. That's Bodo Lang, a Professor of Marketing at Massey University. Oh, Imo, I feel we're heading for this situation at Christmas dinner where there's like going to be awkward tension over whether you say Waka Katahi or whether you say New Zealand Transport Agency. It's going to be such a lightning rod. Personally, I just think some people need bigger problems. <laughs> Coming up, we are talking Whamageddon, the cold Christmas game you've probably been playing without even realising it. And if you listen to as much Christmas music as I do, you've actually already lost. Sorry about that. Speaking of losses, make sure you never lose out on an episode of Newsable. How's that for a segue? All you have to do is chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. Come on, don't be a loser. That was impressive, Jessica McCarthy. (laughs) Now, if you're a Pringles fan like me, you will be aware that they have shrunk in recent years. And I'll note that it's not only the chip size, but it's also the tube, which is a hell of a way to make consumers like myself feel self-conscious about the size of my hands when I'm trying to get to that last chip. (laughs) As you finish your Pringles box, you're like, my giant hands in this tiny tube. It's not just Pringles as well that are getting smaller. There's many products that have shrunk right under our nose as well. We still pay the same price. In fact, according to an expert quoted by the BBC, some businesses, after they, you know, make their products smaller through shrinkflation, then relaunch a bigger version and sell it for a higher price. It's like the anti-shrinkflation. Apparently it's here to stay, and regardless of any economic rebounds that we may see. Susan Edmonds, Stuff's Money Editor, is here now to chat a bit more about shrinkflation. Susan, why wouldn't we see the back of it then, even if economies rebounded? Well, I mean, it's not a recent thing. It's not really tied to the latest surge of inflation that we've had. Mm. I had to dig around in our archives and we had a story in 2017 from Stats NZ saying at that point that the price of a whole mm. lot of stuff had gone up over 10 years and it had also got smaller. It was like butter, shampoo, cheese. So I think because it's not tied to what we've gone through lately, it's just one of those trends of businesses trying to make more money out of what they're selling. And mm. even though inflation is coming down, we're still talking about prices going up less fast rather than actually going backwards in most cases. So I think, yeah, we're kind of stuck with this. Is it tied, we hear about it so much with supermarket goods, I guess, because that's the thing we notice most. Is it tied to supermarket goods or does it, because it happen everywhere? I think it is consumables. I was having to think about this and there aren't many other things that could get smaller. No. While being more expensive. So every time we've done stories on it, it's like chocolate bars, they seem quite bad for it. Um, Pet food, that sort of thing. All, yeah, consumable stuff that you buy, usually at the supermarket. How do companies get away with this? There's a supermarket chain in France which apparently puts stickers on products which have got smaller but haven't seen a price reduction. How hard would that be to do something here? And is this something our grocery commissioner could, you know, make some moves with? Yeah, I suppose so. At the moment, I guess it would be a question for the supermarkets and whether they wanted to. I guess Mm. I'd also have a question about how much they are the victim of the because, I mean, if the supermarket was really wanting to make a stand, it could surely do so by putting a special on or something like that. But then mm. that's just me. There's, maybe there's more going behind the scenes than I've appreciated there. What does it do to the kind of consumer business relationship, though? Because people just hate being tricked like this. So when they find it, they are. Does it really affect brand loyalty? Well, I don't know. I think usually the 
the shrinkflation is relatively small. So say your Pringles, they don't get small enough that you're like, oh, I don't want them. You're just like, oh, you know, whatever. I'll just buy some grumble, more. Grumble, whatever. Yeah, and I, don't, I think we also have, tend to have quite a short memory when we're shopping. We're just like, I've already mm. forgotten the stuff that's got smaller over the past year and just kind of live with it. But I would notice that there is um, home brand Pringles now, and they're not. They're a bit cheaper. Oh, just just putting it out there. <laughs> I have never spotted those, but I certainly will be heading to the supermarket straight after this. Susan Edmund, Stuff's Money Editor, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat all things shrinkflation and Pringles. Especially Pringles. Especially Pringles. <laughs> Remember the game? <sighs> Why have you done this? Now I've lost the game. For those wondering what on earth I'm talking about, I don't really know how to explain this other than basically unless you or someone you know mentions the game, you're still playing the game. But if someone mentions the game out loud, you all lose the game. It's silly. It makes no sense. But there's a reason I'm talking about this because there's another version of the game which I'd not heard of before. It's called Whamageddon and it's made its way into the news. Whamageddon is a game that started 10 years ago where people try to avoid hearing Last Christmas by Wham for as long (laughs) as possible. They want to get to Chrissy Eve without listening to it. If you do hear it, you are eliminated. Now, a football stadium DJ in the UK has had to apologise to the more than 7,000 people who attended a football match because he played Last Christmas by Wham, knocking potentially all those thousands of punters out of Whamageddon and, to top it all off, he's admitted he did it on purpose. That is so grinchy. I hope there was just a massive groan throughout the stadium when he did that. He said he never knew people took it so seriously but thought it would be funny to wipe (laughs) potentially more than 7,000 people out of the game. Wasn't quite so funny for him once the Twitter insults started coming in. And, by the way, he copped abuse in the stadium too. Oh, and... Uh, the wonderful thing about this is if you're knocked out of Whamageddon, it's called getting sent to Whamhalla. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm just Googling it now. I can see there's an entire website that's actually dedicated to this. You can get mm-hmm. merchandise. Oh, I love mm-hmm. merch. Oh, and I see there's this bit of fine print here. It's only the original version of the song that counts. So it's, if it's mm. a remix of sorts... I, don't, I think that's absolutely fine. That, this is very yeah. well thought out. I love that there's fine print to this. Do you know what I've realised? I haven't heard the song yet, so I'm now very much in this to win it. And before you even think about trying to play the song, Jess, I'm going to end things here. That's usable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. I wonder if it counts if I sing a cappella. Go! <laughs> I'm Jessica McCarthy. <laughs> Last Christmas I gave you my heart. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support.